This is Fine Rambles, number 69. So, I hope you guys are having a good Labor Day weekend. I am having a very lazy day, and <laughs> I made I made the cardinal error of actually looking, actually looking at the news. More and more, the news, I just find it bewildering. <laughs> I just, I don't understand what's going on. Let me give you an example. Tulsi Gabbard. So Tulsi Gabbard is this very sensible, very well-spoken candidate for the Democratic nomination. And one of her big platforms is she's anti-war. She's anti-interventionist. Sensibly, at least in my opinion, She thinks the continued infinite war of the last 20 years, which has cost so many thousands of young men and women their lives and their mental health and their limbs, should end. And she is being kept out of the next Democratic debate, basically by fiat of the Democratic National Committee, the DNC. Didn't the DNC learn its lesson in 2016 when they conspired to keep Bernie Sanders from winning the nomination? I mean, if I was a Democrat, I would be like, look, guys, this is twice in a row you've shown your utter contempt for what the people want. And they're so brazen about it. I mean, that's what I really don't understand is <laughs> is sort of the, the chutzpah. In, in 2016, the head of the Democratic National Committee, the head of the DNC, a woman by the name of Debbie Wasserman Schultz, was asked point blank on CNN, what do you tell voters who say that this makes them feel like it's all rigged? And her response was, Superdelegates exist really to make sure that party leaders don't have to be in a position where they are running against grassroots activists. End quote. Like, that's an actual quote of what she said on national television. I mean, they don't even bother to hide it. Just like the Republicans, the DNC or the Democrats is a party run by the elites, run for the donor class and directly against the wishes of, of the electorate. And at least this year, it's so unnecessary. I mean, I understand that wanting to stop the war, zuh, is an unpopular position among the Democratic elite, but it's not like Tulsi Gabbard was going to win the nomination. She's polling at like 3%. But Preventing her from participating is just so bad optically. It's so bad. It almost makes me wonder if it's going to have a blowback effect, if there's going to be some sort of Streisand effect where people say, I don't like the capriciousness of the Democratic Party essentially ending her candidacy because they don't like what she's saying. Here's another thing that just baffles me. So Dorian, Hurricane Dorian, is now a Category 5 hurricane just destroying the Bahamas. And I was thinking about Puerto Rico. 
Puerto Rico is still recovering from Hurricane Maria, I think it was, in 2017. When do we say you just shouldn't live somewhere that gets destroyed every two or three years? And I know, I know how this works. Poor people are forced to live in the shittiest places that are exposed to this this perennial destruction. I mean, there's a reason tornadoes seem to hit trailer parks more often. The people who live in that area know that's the place where the tornadoes form and they stay away. And the only people who live there are the poorest, most desperate people who have no choice. It was the same with New Orleans. When it flooded after Katrina, the French Quarter was high and dry because the rich people, the posh people, they understood the dangers and they built their part of the town on a hill. And the poor people were like, okay, I guess we have to build down below. And of course, when a hurricane hits, they're they're underwater. So I understand the class dynamic, but still, still, isn't isn't it more sensible for us to help the people who live in these shitty destruction-prone areas than to watch their lives and their homes get destroyed every couple years like clockwork? Okay, now here's something I really don't understand. There's now $17 trillion of negative yielding debt, and that's trillion with a T. And it's not just You know, the usual suspects, the countries that are very mature and very safe and very conservative, like Japan and Germany, it's it's countries now like Bulgaria and Romania. I mean, people are lending money to Romania and not asking for interest and being okay with getting less than 100 cents on the dollar back. That, to me, is insane. And let me tell you this, okay? I don't understand this but nobody does. If anyone tells you that they understand the consequences and the ramifications of negative yielding debt, they are either wrong or they are lying. I don't claim to understand this, but I think one of the things it means is that there is $17 trillion out there that cannot find any investment that it thinks will have a positive return. I'm not even talking a high return, just any positive return. And remember what this money is. It's pension money. It's insurance money. How does, how does a pension work when the money you pay into the system shrinks every day? What happens to insurance rates? The money the insurance company is collecting today as a premium is going to be worth less when it's time to pay out policies. How does this affect banks? Remember, money is debt. (laughs) When you give the bank a dollar, when you deposit a dollar into your savings account, they don't lend out one dollar. They lend out twenty dollars, thirty dollars, forty dollars. And now there's 17 trillion dollars of assets that is saying that there's nothing worth lending to. So are banks just going to stop lending? Will bank balance sheets collapse? I mean, that would lead to a depression, not a recession, a depression. And this whole thing begs the question, why aren't there opportunities to invest? Where are the promising new companies? Maybe this implies the entire world is going to go the way of Japan. 
I mean, Japan has been caught in a deflationary spiral for the last 30 years that has destroyed their economic growth. It's devastated their social net, and it's made young people unwilling to marry and have children. From an economic and demographic point of view, Japan is a disaster. It has no future. So does this enormous amount of negative yielding debt imply that the rest of the world is going the same way? Finally, finally on the list of things in the news I do not understand is China. (laughs) China is a big one. On the one hand, people seem to be discussing how horrible the country is from a creeping totalitarian point of view. I mean, good Lord, let's just go through their their sins for a minute. I mean, you have the ongoing genocide of the Muslim Uyghurs. You have, you have the growing cult of personality of Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping? Xi Jinping? I can't pronounce it. I apologize. You have the implementation of the social credit score, where the government is basically bragging about how it's blacklisted tens of millions of its own citizens from doing anything in society. You have the growth of the surveillance state. You have what's essentially the slavery, or at least slavery-like conditions of the ordinary Chinese worker. You have the enormous environmental damage caused by corrupt Chinese industry. You have... You have... The increasing militarization of the South China Sea, you have, oh my God, I mean, you have the escalating violence in Hong Kong. If you haven't seen some of the videos coming out of Hong Kong, of the riots and the protests, do yourself a favor and check them out. They are insane. They look like videos from some dystopian future. What else? You have the neo-colonialism of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is just, you know, hilarious in sort of a gallows humor way. I mean, this idea of lending to developing nations in order to control them through the debt, that's a classic American move. Someone wrote an entire book about it. It was called the, the, uh, what was it called? The Confessions of an Economic Hitman, where we would go into like Latin American countries, lend them money through the IMF or the World Bank. The kleptocrats at the top would steal the money, and then the people would be left holding the bag, the burden of this onerous debt they could never repay. And then the U.S. would come in and force essentially political and economic and social, quote, reforms that made us control them. And now the Chinese are doing it themselves, just on a more direct basis, apparently. What else is China doing? Well... Most of the fentanyl now coming into this country is coming from China. And that fentanyl is worsening the opioid epidemic, killing tens of thousands of Americans. I mean, this is social war. This is war by another name. And it's exactly the same thing that the British did to the Chinese in the 1800s. And now they're doing the same thing to America. (laughs) They've taken a page out of our book. So you have all these sins of, of the CCP on one side, and people are talking about them. And then, and this is what cracks me up, just 
makes me bewildered is at the same time, they look at the U.S. where the U.S. is finally responding to high Chinese tariffs. And before this trade war happened, there were very high tariffs in place by China against U.S. goods. I think they were up to 50% maybe for electronics and automobiles. And now that the U.S. is finally responding to this incredibly unfair balance of tariffs, people are clutching their pearls. The idea that America has to sit on its hands and just accept all of this without doing anything at the same time that China just has this litany of problems, I don't understand it. Anyways, I hope you guys have a great rest of your weekend. That's all I've got, and I'll catch you next week.